Well, I can't believe that we're here in the end of Ephesians already. Uh, it seems only yesterday that I was up here preaching on the first chapter of Ephesians. And now we're lighting the first candle in the Advent season. It's a, we praise God, don't we, that this series has really blessed all of us, I think, and uh, we give all credit to him. So before we begin today, shall we just bow our heads in prayer? Lord, we do thank you for this letter. We thank you that it was written and was inspired by your Holy Spirit. It was a letter written to the Ephesians, yes, but it's also a letter that is written to us for our learning, our teaching, and our edification. So Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart this morning, that we may see the strength and might and power of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Well, this passage, uh, when I discovered that I'll be preaching it, I was quite excited because it's, it's a belter of a passage. Um, it's, it's, it's rich in application. It's, uh, it's, got a great, it's got a great message behind it. It's also quite a long passage. Um, and like Nick Ashton said last week, I probably won't be able to do it as much credit as it deserves, um, but I'll do my best, I think, this morning. Um, it's a belter, like I said, and reading at first glance, you may hear things like spiritual battles, the enemy, evil spirits, the need to take up armor, the need to take up all these different sorts of armors, six pieces, and you might be thinking, well, I thought Jesus had won the battle over sin and death. Why are we still in a spiritual battle? And you would be right in asking that question. But the reason why we're in a spiritual battle is because although Jesus has won the war over the enemy, the enemy hasn't conceded defeat yet. The enemy will still have you think that he has a presence in your life and that he is able to change the outcome, but Jesus has already won the war. You know, he hasn't conceded defeat, and he is yet to be destroyed. So therefore, as Christians who belong to Christ, we naturally have an enemy. An enemy who wants to engage you in spiritual battles. An enemy that hates Jesus Christ, and as a result, hates anybody who belongs to him, who is even thinking about belonging to him. So this passage was written by Paul to remind us of the spiritual battles that we still face. And so today I would like to show you three things that we must know if we are to have victory in Christ. Three things we must know if we're to have victory in Christ. And the first thing that we must know is that we must know our limitations. We must know our limitations. Verse 10 tells us, that we cannot achieve victory in our own strength. We must know that we cannot achieve victory in our own strength. Look at verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say be strong in your strength or in your might, but to be strong in the Lord's strength and his might. And straight off the bat this morning, we're forced to ask ourselves a question. How often do we fight battles in our own strength? And how often are we fighting spiritual battles in our own strength? Maybe we have lots going on. Maybe we're living lives that 
we're finding difficult to pray to God and ask him for his strength. However, as we soon start to realize, we'll start to feel anxious, we'll start worrying about things, a few things that come to mind that I've been worrying about in recent times, deadlines, those difficult conversations that we might need to have, perhaps you're worrying about money. There's all sorts of things that we could be worrying about. But when we feel like this, it's not long before we start to feel drained and we start to feel tired. And this just gives ammunition to the devil. Only in Christ can we stand against the devil's schemes. And we sang those songs earlier, didn't we? All our worship songs this morning have been talking about standing strong. I love particularly that one, in Christ alone, my hope, in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. We must understand that if we want to have victory in Christ, we must know our limitations and turn to Christ alone. Secondly, Paul says in verse 11 that we must know who our enemy is. He says um, that we must put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil. Our enemy isn't some sort of made-up force like some people would have you believe, like some sort of Jedi dark side or something like that. It's not some sort of esoteric metaphor. The devil is a spiritual being, an intelligent, scheming spiritual being. There's only one person who has ever defeated the devil and his schemes, and that was Jesus Christ. And if you are to think this morning that you are able to stand against the scheme of the devil in your own strength, then you are gravely mistaken. We're told in the Bible that the devil's been scheming from the very beginning. We can think back, can't we, to Genesis, where he approaches Adam and Eve as a serpent, and he convinces them, and he tempts them into believing that God's word isn't enough, that they should take from the fruit, that they should stand in their own strength and become their own gods. Adam and Eve did take from that fruit, and since then, they've introduced sin into our world. And since then, the enemy has been using his schemes about, against people for thousands of years, He's hell-bent on making us think that Jesus Christ and his word isn't enough. That we should do things in our own strength and that everything will be okay. If we want to have victory in Jesus Christ, we must know who our enemy is. He's the accuser. He's the deceiver. He's the father of lies. He's the tempter and he's the thief. But God... God has made us alive in Christ. Don't forget those wonderful spiritual blessings that we read about in the first chapter of Ephesians. That we are blessed in him. We are chosen in him. We are predestined in him. In him we have an inheritance. In him we have the promised Holy Spirit. We should be so imbued with the spirit of Christ that when the enemy tries to pick a battle with us, he's picking a battle with Jesus Christ too. The other week I was on the phone to somebody and they were asked me how I was getting on. Um, I told them, well, I'll be preaching next week, so things aren't great. I'm feeling the pressure a little bit. I'm feeling slightly stressed out. 
And that person said to me on the phone, she said, uh, I said, I feel like I'm having a spiritual attack. And he said, you're not having a spiritual attack in the sense that you think you are. The devil's not attacking you. He's attacking Jesus. And it took a while to make me think, what does that mean? The, the devil's not attacking you. He's attacking Jesus. And then I realized, and it's like the Holy Spirit was saying something to me. You better understand what this means because you're preaching on this next week. <laughs> I'd realized that I'd probably been fighting my spiritual battles in my own strength. And I was making the spiritual battle all about me. And I feel like it's a message that we should all understand this morning, that if you are making the spiritual battles all about you and solely about you, then I would say that you're probably also standing in your own strength. I repeat that we should be so imbued with the Spirit of Christ that when the devil decides to pick a battle with us, he's also picking a battle with Jesus Christ. Don't fall into the trap of making the spiritual battles all about you. This way of thinking will not bring you victory in Christ. And then thirdly, we must know that we are easily distracted. We must know our limitations and know that we are easily distracted. If you look with me to verse 12, it says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers for this, over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Notice what Paul says there at the beginning of the verse. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And yet, where do we find most of our battles happening and occurring? More often than not, we wrestle against flesh and blood, against other people and against ourselves. But we must remember who our enemy is. Our enemy is the devil. He's a deceiving, lying, cheating tempter, and he will do anything to take the attention away from himself and place it on something else, either you or other people. You might be tempted to get angry. You might be tempted to uh, take offense at something that somebody said. You might be tempted to get angry at the culture you live in, the government that we have, the people in our church, angry at somebody for an act that they did years ago. Can the enemy use people to hurt us? Absolutely, yes, he can. But also you must ask yourself the question, what can God do in the lives of people? Can God use people to edify us? Yes, he can. Can God use people in the government to bring reform in our politics? Yes, he can. Can God use people in this church to glorify the name of Jesus? Yes, he can. This is a spiritual battleground that we find ourselves fighting on but we must stand in the strength of Jesus Christ and let him be the person who interfaces between us and the rest of the world. We do not stand in our own strength and might. We stand in the strength and might of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does the devil make us fight against other people, like I just said, he makes us fight against ourselves with our own flesh and blood. How many of us are in a spiritual war against ourselves this morning? Maybe you feel that you're not good enough. Maybe you feel like you're too fat or too ugly or you need this or you need that. This amount of money will bring me peace. 
this thing will help me in this area. Remember, only Jesus Christ can save you and restore you from these thoughts. Remember who he is, that he loves you, that he chose you, that he cares for you. Jesus is all we need. He died for your sins. He wants a relationship with you if you belong to him. I love how the NLT renders this verse in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. It says, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in, and we will share a meal together as friends. I love that slant on it where it says as friends. Let Jesus, your friend, be the one who will fight the spiritual battles for you. Because we cannot fight spiritual battles. We, we do not wrestle against f- flesh and blood. This is a spiritual battle. Paul says in verse 12, it's a battle against spiritual rulers, spiritual authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. These are evil spirits. They have no code of honor. They have no human rights. They're a spiritual army. And, and notice they're all organized into hierarchies with authority given to them by the devil to attack you. They're a spiritual army, and we cannot fight them in our own strength with our own flesh and battle. So we must put up the whole armor of God, as Paul says in verse 13, that we may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. We're about to enter the well-known section of our passage today the armor of God. And here Paul uses a metaphor and it's based upon the armor of a, of a Roman soldier. And the application is simple. Just as a Roman soldier would prepare themselves for battle, we too must prepare ourselves for the spiritual battle that we face. We could spend a whole sermon series just looking at each constituent part of the armor. Um, and there are many such series out there. I would recommend to you... Um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' one is is a great one. I also enjoyed Alistair Begg's one. And if you're looking for a commentary, I would recommend John Stott's commentary on this. But this morning, we're just going to go and have a glance at some of these pieces of spiritual armor that God has given us. And it brings me on to my second point for today, that if we are to have victory in Christ, we must know the armor of God. We must know the armor of God. And the first piece of armor is the belt of truth. Now, a Roman's belt was an important piece of armor. It was the belt that the tunic was tucked into. It was the belt that the breastplate attached to. It was a belt that the the sword's sheath was sheathed into. And the belt basically just held everything together. But it wasn't Romans who just relied on belts. For thousands of years, God's people had been using belts And you'll often hear in in Scripture God saying to his people to gird up their loins. And you might have wondered, well, what does it mean to gird your loins? It it basically means to take your robes or your tunic and to lift them up and either tie them around yourself or tuck them into your belt. It was basically God's way of saying, get ready for action, get ready for a battle. Today we might say that we are to buckle up our belts Buckle up and get ready for action. So how does the belt of truth protect us and prepare us for victory in Christ? 
Well, we must hold everything together in truth. The truth of the gospel, the truth in Jesus Christ, the truth that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and it's only through him that you will get to the Father. If somebody tells you a different truth to that, you better be ready to buckle up and get ready for a spiritual battle. There's so many people in this world who will attack you for having believe it, for believing in that truth. Don't forget, the enemy is the father of lies. He's telling lies to everybody. So we must buckle up and be ready and be known for telling the truth. The second piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. A Roman soldier would wear a protective breastplate. It was either made of metal or leather, and it would protect their front and their back, and they would also have bits that go down and protect their thighs. It was designed to protect the, uh, the soldier's uh, vital organs. So how does the breastplate of righteousness prepare us for victory in Christ? Well, Paul says earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, that we are created after the likeness of God and in true righteousness and holiness. As Christians, we are in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, we are to put off the old self, for we do not belong to the ranks of the enemy anymore. We are not fighting on his side anymore. We have been renewed. We now fight for the kingdom of God and for God's holy army. He's paid for our sins. He's drafted us in. And not through any merit or anything that we've done of ourselves. We do not deserve this. This is the grace of God. But he's handpicked us and chosen us to be fighting for him. We're ready to fight for his perfect obedience on the cross that has made us righteous. One day we will be presented to King Jesus, as it says in Revelation, as his church and as his bride. All his righteousness will be our very own because we've been united to him and we have become one with him. This is the breastplate of righteousness that we armor ourselves in. The next piece of armor is the gospel shoes of peace. Paul calls them the shoes that give readiness by the gospel of peace. A Roman soldier was given a special type of shoe that had nails on the bottom of the sole. It helped them to to travel for further distance over rougher terrain. It also allowed them to dig their feet into the ground when they're in a battle so that they could stand firm and hold their line. So how does the gospel shoes of peace prepare us for victory in Christ? Well, Paul says earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 70, how Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. Christ came and preached peace. It wasn't a sort of worldly peace that allows people to carry on in their sin, but it was peace through the gospel of Christ. And I love that verse in Isaiah 52, verse 7, that says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. We should be publishers of salvation. We should be publishing the good news of the gospel. You think this news would be published all over our media outlets? 
Feel free to pick that up, Martin. <laughs> Welcome if you want to. We should be, you would think that this world would be publishing the good news of the gospel in all our news and media outlets, but they don't. You would think that this would be on our TV screens every single day forever, but it's not. Because the enemy hates the gospel. The enemy hates this news. And as Paul says earlier on in Ephesians, this evil world that we live in is ruled by him. He is the prince of this world. The fourth piece of armor is the shield of faith. The shield of faith. A Roman soldier was equipped with a large shield that covered his whole body. It was especially designed to put out arrows, uh, the flaming arrows that were dipped in pitch, set alight. The shield had a, had, um, was designed so that the, the arrows would go into and then would extinguish upon hitting the shield. You would have seen these fire arrows in films, the big sheets of arrows that come over the, shots, uh, the soldiers. Well, Paul says that we should have an, uh, a shield of faith, a shield of faith. He says that we should take up the shield of faith so that we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. You know, the enemy attacks us from a distance. With fire, he fires flaming arrows at us, and it's hard to locate where they come from. And he attacks us when we're least expecting it. Arrows of lust, arrows of greed, arrows of doubt, arrows of fear. All sorts of arrows that we're not equipped to deal with. They can penetrate into our lives and sap away our faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul says that we must raise our shields of faith. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5 says that God himself is a shield to those who take refuge in him. We must take refuge in God. Remember your salvation. It is by faith in Jesus Christ that you are saved. And this shield is given to us as a gift of God, so we must use it raise it up, and rely on our faith in Jesus to save us from the enemy. A fifth piece of armor is the helmet of salvation. A Roman soldier wore a helmet of salvation, not of salvation. They wore a helmet. It was made of tough metal. We wear a helmet of salvation. Um, it was a helmet that went round on their head, protected them. Um, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, in him... You also, he's talking about Jesus. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is our salvation. The seal that Paul is talking about here is one of those wax seals, a form of identification. It was used to authenticate and to protect documents and letters we have been sealed with the promise Holy Spirit. Within us, we are identified as one of one of Christ's children. We belong to him. And again, those words in Christ alone, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. By grace you have been saved, Paul says. By grace you have been saved. He repeats it twice in Ephesians 2. Our salvation comes from Jesus Christ, and we are sealed. The deal is wrapped up. It's done. We're identified. We're protected. Charles Hodge wrote that that which adorns and protects the Christian, which enables them to hold up their heads with confidence and joy, is the fact that they are saved. 
So we must too hold up our heads high, protected with the helmet of salvation. Now we're, we're heading into the last piece of uh, armor. Ooh, and I would argue that it's not just a piece of armor. It could be used for attacking too. The next piece is the sword. Paul calls it the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. For a Roman soldier, he was equipped with a short sword. It was meant for attacking and for, and for defending in close combat. I think the inference is this, that once the enemy realizes those flaming darts aren't going to hit you, then he's going to come in close for a personal and powerful attack. And so we must be ready with the spirit of the Lord, which is the word of God, and prepare ourselves for victory in Christ. So how does the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, prepare us for victory in Christ? Well, Jesus is the word. Jesus is the word made flesh. All scripture points to and is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Jesus says of himself in Matthew that he is a sword that divides people. You might be wondering, well, what does that mean? It means the very nature of Jesus and who he is. The truth claims of who he says he is forces people to make a choice. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 13 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who he must give an account it says that this, the Word of God, this, the Word of God, has cutting power that is sharper than any two-edged sword. And I agree with John Stott when he says we should never be ashamed to say or acknowledge that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Our Bible is what we base everything on here at Lincoln Baptist Church. Today's world and even some churches will tell you that if you put this book away, you'll be fine. Don't open that Bible. It's outdated. It was written thousands of years ago. It has no relevance to today's culture. Leave it in the past. Well, I say, be gone, Satan. You are naked. You are exposed to the eyes of God. You must give account to the one who discerns your thoughts and the evil intentions of your heart. The sword of the word of God is a weapon that we must be prepared and we should be able to use if we are to have victory in Christ. And then finally, the last weapon in the armor of God is all prayer. I've included it as a weapon here. Paul doesn't use it in his military metaphor. But Paul says in verse 18 that, that in the spirit, Christians must be praying. And it says that we must be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and all supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. If you're a Bible underliner, you could underline all the alls in that sentence, in that verse. All times, all prayer, all perseverance, supplication for all saints. Notice it doesn't say pray sometimes with some effort or praying for some of your fellow Christians. All. 
We should be praying at all times. I wonder if we've forgotten who our enemy is. Have we become distracted? Have we forgotten how to put on the armor of God? Our prayer lives require us to always be praying to God, to always be in his word, to take up the armor of God. Our prayer lives require us the knowledge that we are always in a battle, not just sometimes, but always. I don't think it's any mistake that God tells us, well, Jesus told us in the Lord's Prayer to be praying for protection from the evil one or for evil. We should be praying at all times. And then finally, and I'll be quick with this, this one, we should know each other. Three things we are to know and to have victory in Jesus Christ. And the third one is to know each other. And it sounds simple, but we should know each other's needs. If you look at verses 19 to 20, Paul says, Pray also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Despite his situation and despite the fact that he's chained to a Roman guard under house arrest, he asked that he would be given the words to say, to boldly proclaim the gospel. And I love this prayer request. Notice he's not asking to be free from his situation. He's not asking to be free from being in prison or not to be chained to somebody 24-7. He's asking to stay exactly where he is. Like it says earlier on in the passage, to stand firm exactly where he is, that he may be able to boldly proclaim the gospel. He's clearly under a spiritual attack, and he has been for many years. And yet here he is in prison, and he's a living testimony of how to have victory in Christ. But Paul is clear with the Ephesians. He's, he's asking them for help. He needs their help. He knows that if he reaches out in prayer, his fellow Christians, or saints as he would have called them, will stand together with him in prayer. You know, it's important that we do that today too. And I'm reminded of my house group, how much I love my house group, how I can reach out to them with my prayer requests and know that they will listen to me and know that they will be praying with me and that I could be praying for them too. You know, some answers to prayer that we've had in house group over the past year, and you may have experienced the same thing in your own house groups, have, have literally been miraculous. Don't let Satan tempt you away from a deep relationship with other Christians, with other fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We must stand firm, hold the line, so that when somebody slips in battle, you could be there with your shield of faith, protecting them and helping them up to their feet. I've experienced this recently myself. I thank God for my house group. Secondly, we're to know each other and to know that we can rely on each other. If you look at verses 21 to 22, Paul says in verse 21, so you may be able to know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and how he may encourage your hearts. Paul knew that he could rely on his beloved brother, Tychicus. Tychicus was like a, a faithful gospel postman, 
You might have read his name in other letters. He's in six of them, and he goes around and he basically takes all the letters from the church leaders and from the apostles, and he delivers them out to Christian churches all over the world. I'm sure it was a pretty dangerous job back then. I'm sure not just dangerous physically, but dangerous spiritually. But we know he's reliable because he's always mentioned as the person who's going around delivering these letters and read them out to the churches. Paul knew that he could rely on him. And it's a, it's a really touching sentiment that Paul wants the Ephesians to be encouraged. He wants to encourage their hearts. Over the years, he's fostered a deep personal relationship with these, these people, with the saints. And he wants them to know how he is doing. I love this picture of the early church. A church that was interested in the clear exposition of God's word and the new society that they found themselves living in. But also a church that genuinely loved and cared for one another. They're a praying church. They pray for one another. They're a serving church. They serve one another. They're a caring church. They genuinely care for one another. I think this snapshot of the early church here is something that we can all learn a lesson from. That we should absolutely focus on doctrine and theology and God's word, yes, but we should also be a loving church that cares for one another, that serves one another, that prays for one another. We must be able to rely on each other when we live in this evil world that we live in. We're fighting spiritual battles together. And the enemy stands no chance when the church are fighting battles like this in love for one another. Standing shoulder to shoulder with our, buckles, with our belts buckled up. <laughs> with our breastplates fastened with our shields held high, with our shoes firmly planted on the ground, the helmets securely fixed, and the word of God in our hands. Each of us praying for each other at all times with all supplication and praying for all saints that they may stand firm in the army of God and in the strength of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to leave it there and, and leave the last two verses for our benediction this morning. Should we just take a moment to pray? Father God, we pray right now in the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray, devil be gone. You have no authority here in the house of God. You have no authority here in our lives. We are children of God and we stand in truth. We stand in righteousness, and we stand in peace, sure of our salvation, rooted in Scripture and filled with the Holy Spirit to be able to use the Word of God. Jesus, as our King seated at the right hand of God, we know that you hear our prayers this morning. Lord, would you just be with us? Protect us, your children, your soldiers your army. Unite us in your love, we pray. Amen.